today, we're sharing our 13 key property principles. In other words, our golden rules for property buyers. Welcome to Your First Home Buyer Guide, the podcast for first home buyers who want to move it along and become homeowners. But most importantly, it is for home buyers who want to get it right. I'm Megan and that was Veronica. We're both buyers agents and probably old enough to be your mum. And that's a good thing because between us, we've got over 45 years experience to share with you and bucket loads of stories and avoidable mistakes. Together, we're going to make sure you get unbiased and real information you can rely on. We've got loads of free tips for you in this episode. And if you'd like more useful tools, head over to the website, homebuyeracademy.com.au. There you'll get access to our free webinar, how to buy your first home with the right amount of debt. You'll also find the holy grail of home buying education, your first home buyer guide, the online course of people who want to be educated home buyers. We have created this for you to help you get on the right path to home ownership for your first home and beyond. But before we get into the interesting stuff in this week's episode, here's the boring bit, the disclaimer. You of course know that nothing in this podcast is to be taken as personal advice. We always recommend getting the advice of an expert in their field who takes the time to understand your personal situation. We've done our very best to ensure that the content is correct at the time of recording, but things change rapidly. So always check with the relevant government authority or your trusted advisors to get the most up-to-date information. Today we're talking about our Home Buyer Academy property principles. You've probably heard us refer to these and now we're going to pull them all together in one value-packed episode. Yeah, these principles are the truisms that we have discovered in our decades of experience as property professionals. Veronica, let's go through them one at a time. Here we go. Number one, and they're not in any particular order, these either. So number one is that real estate agents do not represent you. You have to understand that they are legally representing the seller. That's who pays them. They have to get the best result for their owner. And that's the reality. Don't get cranky if they are doing their job. And it feels really hard as a buyer, and that's why this is one of our key principles, is you've just got to understand that is how it is. You can't fight it. There's no use getting cranky about it. Just knowing this actually will help you avoid trusting the agent too much or having unreal expectations about what the agent should and shouldn't be doing. That's exactly right. And then you won't get into arguments with them or you won't be out cussing them and cursing them because you just think, you know what, they're just doing their job and I've got my job to do and that's to buy the property and not trust them too much. All right, number two, (laughs) Megan. If someone is advising you and we put uh, inverted commas around that, no, they're not inverted commas, what are they? They're rabbit ears. Rabbit ears. They are inverted commas because it's in a comma that is inverted. (laughs) Let's go again. If someone is advising you and they are suggesting specific properties without talking to you about what your needs are, then they are probably working for the seller, not for you. Now, we're talking real estate agents, developers, financial advisors, mortgage brokers. Veronica, if you are not paying for advice, somebody else is. Somebody, exactly. If you're not paying for the advice, you are the product. That's the bottom line. It's just that a means- sales pitch, really. If, if you're not paying the person who says they're giving you advice, 
then they are being paid by somebody else to do a job on behalf of that other person. And that's all you need to always remember. Yeah. And that in particularly with, with more first home buyers and mortgage brokers, uh, we love mortgage brokers. We love you using mortgage brokers. They need to be part of your team. They do. But if you have one that is saying you should go down the road to this new subdivision and buy this new new house and land package from this builder, blah, 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 mm. you have to be thinking, hang on a minute, why are you giving me this advice? Why are you telling me what I should buy? And are you getting paid? To yep. do so, because you know what? Anybody, and this happens quite a lot actually, but any, particularly with first home buyers, because they're saying to you, you can grab all these, these free money from the government, grants and, um, incentives. grants and incentives. And however, they are getting paid a lot of money to do that. And so it's not a good idea for you. You are not getting advice you are getting sold to. So that's a really just look at it as principle. a sales pitch. You know, and if, if that sales pitch suits you, then make your own independent inquiries. Don't rely just on the, we're not particularly saying that they might not have a great option for you. They might, probably not, but don't think that that advice is for you. It's not. It's a sale of something that they have to sell because they're being paid by somebody else to sell that. Right. So number three which sort of follows on from that, that government grants are there to help the construction industry and the economy. Mm -hmm. They're not actually there to help first home buyers. Hear us out here. <laughs> the reason we're saying this is because many grants dictate to you what you need to buy in order to qualify. And if anything is limited to brand new or buying off the plan, then it's actually not really looking after your interests. It's looking after the interests of continuing, uh, you know, supporting the economy and supporting builders and developers. Yeah, and look, it's bringing new um, supply to the market. And and look, we're hearing over and over again about how there is an undersupply. But be really careful about what you're looking at when you're talking about an undersupply or oversupply. Now, this is a whole nother episode, and, and we've touched on this in many previous podcasts. But um, what is undersupplied is generally established properties that are in well well sought after locations, not new properties that are in areas where there is still a lot of land or opportunity to increase similar size stock or similar types of stock. Well, I was about to say the simple fact is that the government doesn't need to incentivize people to buy the stuff that's scarce. They need to incentivize people to buy the stuff that there's a lot of it. Yeah. And that's why it's dangerous. Yeah. And the construction industry is a huge employer. You know, there are over a million people employed in this country in construction. So they have a fair bit of lobbying power, um, but governments want to ensure that they stay employed as well because we don't need the employment rate to go up. We've got inflation and all sorts of other pressures on, on cost of living. So there are more construction workers who vote than first home buyers. And that's why we see sometimes these schemes are really aimed at increasing that part of the industry. Absolutely. Number four. Do you want to hit it, Megan? If it's easy to buy, then it's probably going to be difficult to sell. Now, have a really good think about that. You know, really, really sit and think on think on it. Buyers tend to want to avoid competition when they buy. That's a human nature. But if you're the only person who wants to buy, you have to ask yourself why, particularly if the market is a little bit, you know, in the seller's favour at that point in time. 
What does this mean for you in the future when you go to sell? Veronica, this is such an important one to think about. It's my favorite principle. It really is because it's so, it's like it just pauses for pause. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, hang on a minute. Say that again. If you're finding something's easy to buy, then when you go to sell it, it's going to be difficult probably to sell. And the person trying to sell it to you is finding it difficult because it's real easy for you as the buyer. And so that's the one competition for it because it's not sought after. That's it. You want to buy something that's sought after. I know that that appeal counterintuitive because people go, no, I I want an easy way. I want to buy something easy. It's like, no, you do not because you might be stuck with it. You want an easy process is is the shortcut is you want you want uh, to be able to make an offer and negotiate with an owner where there's no multiple offers or you want to be able to buy at an auction where there's no one else bidding if you're in that situation in other than a really heavily weighted market that's in the buyer's favor then really stand back and say why doesn't anyone else want to buy this property what you want to be is a successful purchaser of a property that is under huge demand or good demand not huge necessarily, but strong demand. Yeah, that's such a good distinction that you called there. You know, you want the process to be easy and and I think you need to 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 just pull that apart to make sure that whatever you're buying isn't is not the problem, is that it's a yes. crap property. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. Num- let's look at number five. Five. The biggest risk with first home buyer incentives is that in the rush to take advantage of them, you buy the wrong property. Yeah. Now, we already touched on off the plan and and brand new and the limitations around that, but there's another really important thing that is an element of many of these incentives that can cause a problem for first home buyers. Yeah, and it's it's time limitations. So some of the incentives and, and the grants that have been around have had a time, you have to do it by 30 June, you have to do it by 31st of August, you have to have completed this. And what that does is put undue pressure on a decision-making process that should not be made under duress. And duress is anything that puts pressure on you to do something in a certain time frame. So when you do that, because an incentive will expire by a certain point in time, you start making compromised decisions about the long term, which is the property itself. And that's, you know, that's, we teach that ad nauseum. It's got to be that long-term view of the property um, in line with your goals and your needs and, and your own unique situation. So off the plan and, and brand new, the, the limitations that come around those sorts of um, incentives that are offered, whether it be through one of the authorities, federal or state authorities, or from a developer themselves um, that are trying to get, uh, you know, developers have to get a certain number of sales in order to have a viable development project. And if they're trying to get some sales over the line, then they might provide an incentive to get you to make a decision really quickly. Um, Yes, I've seen one where they basically will help you with the deposit. And I'm like, that's just really, really particularly scary because it so locks you into their development. And yeah, I just, I don't like it at all. But also price caps. So a lot of these incentives do have a cutoff point. Um, and you know what? For some buyers, that's not an issue because it's it's more than what they can afford. But if it is more than you can afford and then you sort of squash your requirements in uh, to fit underneath the price cap in order to to make a saving on stamp duty or, or anything else, but you could buy a property that would serve you longer uh, or suit you better um, and 
that's where the grants can become a problem for some buyers as well that they end up buying a compromised property that doesn't really doesn't really give them um a nice a better place to live for longer and that's going to cost them more in terms of transaction costs at some future point but also just you sort of I don't know, you're in a location you don't really want to be or you bought an apartment where you could buy a townhouse or or whatever it is if you find that you are really compromising and buying too small um, for your medium term use and you can afford more then that's a false economy just getting a little bit of extra money from the government is a false economy all right number six is an unacceptable compromise in one stage of life may be okay in a different stage of life so now, true. we debated this quite a bit actually because what what we're actually saying there is depending on where you are in your phase of life and we go through these different phases of life you know your first time maybe on your own or you've just coupled up or the next one is when the the protection potentially children are coming into the mix and then then they're at school and and then they're heading towards university and empty nesting and so forth so there's different stages of life that you go through what might be unacceptable to you and a bathtub is a classic example of that veronica you know when when you've got little children or you're, you're having babies and 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 thinking about what do we need in our home it's almost like you can't imagine living without a bathtub and and it's you know it, it is a genuine and, and real um uh need that that you have to be able to bath your children is so much easier than putting particularly them in the close to the kitchen yes you know yeah yeah when i when i renovated and did our last house which was about um 13 years ago i was um pregnant and and in the lead up was you know planning to have a family what i didn't know at that time was i had the bathtub upstairs and all the living was downstairs so i was constantly trying to make up a makeshift bathtub in the shower downstairs wishing that I'd thought to put a bathtub in that shower downstairs you know that was my learning but as soon as the kids were old enough to shower themselves it was like the bathtub never got used again mm. so and then when you're older when you're sort of starting to worry about your mobility which of course for our listeners is a long way away you know you don't want a bathtub because you want to walk in shower that you a can't actually shower that you don't there's no trip over yeah there's yeah. no trip trip has it but also <laughs> you know there are lots of things that change with little kids to bigger kids as well like for instance little kids open plan living with a kitchen and and combined living dining room is so important but as soon as those kids start going to school you think i need separate living area i need a separate <laughs> space so these are really important distinctions and like you megan when you were pregnant you didn't know what was coming you didn't know what was next and <laughs> I know that as hey, we need as, to do a course for new mothers. That's it. <laughs> as buyers agents, we often spend time educating people as to what the next stage of their life, what will bring in terms of property requirements. And mm. oh, I didn't think of that. It's like with kids, um, it doesn't matter about being close to say a train line when you've got primary school kids because you don't want them getting the train by themselves. But when they're as soon as they hit about thirteen, you go, oh yeah. my god, I want them to be able to walk to the station and get around all by themselves under their own steam <laughs> yes. yeah yeah some safe independence um the other thing is you know as you move out of that that phase of of children and outside activities and and fenced yards and all of those sorts of things and and into that phase of life where you might be um perhaps looking at doing a lot more travel the difference between wanting a yard perhaps a pool if you're in a warmer area 
or a courtyard or a balcony is vastly different because um, that stage of life, that that sort of smaller, confined, lock up and leave lifestyle actually works really well, but not mm. so much. So the compromise of um, going from a yard down to a courtyard or a, or a balcony when you're in an earlier phase of life may be completely unacceptable, but actually what you want in a different stage of life. And what is important about this is to draw a distinction between the quality of the property or the asset, as we keep talking about buying a good asset, versus something that has all those those little boxes ticked that you want to tick when you buy your home. So there, there are a lot of good assets that might not actually suit your requirements right now, but are still a good asset. Yes. And so it's really drawing a distinction between those things and understanding that your needs will change, even though you're not necessarily aware that they will change. And trying to have a bit of a longer lens on that will actually help you make better property decisions as well. Mm. Let's go on to number seven, another of your favourites. Oh, yes. Capital growth bloody does matter. It matters. <laughs> <laughs> so much more than people give it any credit. Um, yeah. And and really it's because your first property in particular, we say it's the most important one in many ways because if it doesn't grow in value, you'll be stuck there, mm. right? You won't be able to upgrade unless you so you come into some money or you have massive increases to your income. Mm. Because And that's the whole point that while the rest of the market is growing, if you buy one of those properties, it doesn't grow. And it does happen to people, yeah. right? It does happen. Some people get stuck. And so that's why you do have to focus on that future buyer. Back to that, um, our principle about if it's easy to buy now, it could be hard to sell in the future. That's all tied in with capital growth. Mm, yeah, and future buyer. And and if it doesn't grow in value, at worst, you know, at worst, you want to keep up with the market, not have bought something that will only be saleable and have some attractiveness in a heavily heavily seller-weighted market. So where there's so many buyers with so much FOMO, which we've seen, um, there was a 20-year spread between when we saw the last level of capital growth that we saw across the country generally, um, which was back in about 2002, 2003, versus that 21 kind of period where everyone went nuts. Um, so 20 years is a long time to hold an asset that hasn't grown in value in the hope that there will be an anomaly, anomaly in the market that will allow you to have to find that buyer that will pay something astronomical. So at worst, you want to keep up with the market, but at best, you actually want to be choosing something that is exceeding the market around you. And that capital growth, that compounding nature of capital growth is where the true magic of property really lies because mm -hmm. You know, each time you have that little bit of growth, it compounds. It is the growth on top of the growth plus the growth. Uh, and that's, you know, I wish they'd teach this better at high school. Um, and actually, I, was, I spoke to somebody about, you know, that very, you know, that financial literacy is part of, um, uh, part of education. What that really means is if you buy a good asset, it every year it grows more and more and more because it grows on top of itself. And, and I love that about property. The snowball, you know, it just gets bigger and bigger as it rolls down mm, the mountain. The I love it about property as well, but also the pain when somebody misses it, they buy property that doesn't grow or it grows at that slower rate. That's why it's so important to really focus on capital growth because you can get left behind 
it, because the whole thing about um, compounding is it's exponential. It's phenomenal mm. uh, because it builds on itself. It's actually phenomenal, um, you know, the magic of it when you sit down and look at the numbers and look at a chart just from those exponential graphs. Think, oh, my God. So it's exciting. And we obviously at our stage of life can look back at properties that we bought a long time ago and see what they've done. At the beginning of it, all you see is this huge hurdle of the yeah. deposit you've got to yeah. get over so uh, we get we get that you think oh, i don't care i just want to get on the ladder but but um we'll get to that number eight if you can't fix an issue it will always be an issue oh yeah now we like the issues you can fix yeah you know there's some good value adds in property but there are some things that cannot be fixed yeah and and examples of that are main roads or you know being right next to an electrical substation or those really big overhead power lines now you can't do anything about it. you can double glaze windows you can, you know there's all sorts of um, little measures for comfort that you can put in place but you actually can't remove them um, and so if you're thinking it's a concern when you are buying then the next buyer is going to think it's a concern as well. And what that does is it really narrows your future buyer pool. Yeah, which come back to the capital growth. It restricts growth that again. growth. Um, a couple of other examples. I mean, if you've got damp in a property that cannot be fixed because of the way in which it was constructed in the first place. Like I have come across properties over the years where part of the wall's under the ground level and the adequate drainage was never put in at the time of being built. It's like you spend, it's just Band-Aid after Band-Aid after Band-Aid cannot be fixed, always be a problem. And, you know, I've warned clients off properties like that before. So recognising these, some of these things can't be fixed and would be a bloody nightmare. One property in particular just keeps coming on the market over and over again because the people, people buy it, they realise it's awful, then they do a Band-Aid, they paint it, they sell it, then they the new buyer buys it, doesn't realise, and the damp starts coming through again. This this happens over and over again. It's one particular property in Roselle. And I spoke to a building inspector about that. He says because there's a, basically a rock wall that it's been built against when it was built, they didn't put a drain. They didn't dig a channel with a drain. They just basically built the, the wall against the rock. And there's nothing to stop all of that just seeping into the house. Terrible. Something that we look at, it's interesting because it is something that we look at um, and, and any professional like yourselves and so forth would look at is when you are on a slope, there are construction techniques that can account for that. So some people say just I don't want to buy anything where the house sort of is on a slope and anything could be underground. But there are really good construction techniques where you do have quite a good um, zone between the house and the retaining wall rather than the retaining wall being the house um so don't just always go oh no it's it's that block slopes the wrong way it's not going to work and similarly if there is some damp or there is um, a house that has been constructed up as the retaining wall is is part of the actual external wall of the building do talk to a plumber or a professional about to see if you can create that that zone and that drainage and fix the problem and if you can then it doesn't fall into this category no, absolutely. You just have to decide whether the cost of doing that is justified and whether if that removes the issue, then maybe you've actually manufactured some fairly good um, potential for growth in a property by being able to fix a problem. Absolutely. A couple of other examples, a south-facing garden that slopes away from the house the bottom of that garden will always be dark because it sort of doesn't hit, it doesn't get any light because it slopes away from the house and it's yeah, south-facing yeah. or a dark apartment. 
you can't put skylights in an apartment unless it's on the top floor. But even, even then, it's probably a bit of a battle with with. Um, you the probably can't. But anyway. corporate, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so there's certain things that cannot be fixed. You cannot put more windows in an apartment. You know, can't be done. Particularly if it's south facing. Yes. You, All you, right. You, you've, that that is an uphill battle. That one. <laughs> now number nine. On this, along the same lines, actually, the bones of a property are key, and we're not talking the pretty stuff here. We're talking the bones, the skeleton. So you can you can change cosmetic things, but yeah. you can't really change the bones. And what are we what are we talking about there? Things such as well, we're talking about high ceilings. You know, if you've got you walk into a room and you feel I'm I'm only five foot four, right? So I'm the average woman height. You're you're a bit taller, um, but if I, I walk thought into I was a... average. <laughs> Let me tell you, five falls average. I'm going to stick with that. <laughs> if you walk into a room and you go, gee, that ceiling is really close to the top of that door, it's yeah. it's probably just on what would be considered habitable meters. height. Um, yeah. and, and that can feel quite low, but it also restricts some of your airflow, it restricts your natural light, and you can't change that. It's not, you can't raise the ceiling. Um, room proportions are another big one. If you walk into a property and it's got this really um, lovely main bedroom, great size, you could fit a king size bed in there and some other furniture and the wardrobe and, and what have you, but you walk into the lounge room and it's the same size as the bedroom um, and the other two bedrooms are, are really small. You can't I've change I've been that. in properties that have a lounge room smaller than the main bedroom. I don't get it. Where do you spend your time? I know. Who designed it? It's just like nuts. Somebody who wasn't going to live there designed it, you know, but but those room proportions actually, you know, feeling like you can, can work with a room and put decent furniture in it instead of, you know, and I'm not saying every room. Sometimes, you know, if, you, if you're looking at a three-bedroom house and the fourth is kind of study size, that might be acceptable if you're looking for a three-bedroom house with a study. Mm. Um, but but if you've got three bedrooms that are small or two bedrooms that are small or one that's reasonable and the second one's not, um, or your, your room proportions, so the number of bedrooms to number of bathrooms to living spaces is out of whack. Yeah. Um, a five-bedroom house with one living area and one bathroom you want to really have a look at whether you can rejig re that floor plan because the on-sale, the future buyer, is going to look at that and say, I can't work with this. No. Or well, long skinny rooms, another classic. So I've seen yes. bedrooms that are like two and a half metres wide and five metres long. <laughs> it's like, how do you furnish that? You can barely get a bed in it. <laughs> and good foundations, you know, that that's incredibly important too. So um, the pretty things, as, as, as you, you know, pointed out, you might go, oh, I don't want to renovate a bathroom or I don't want to renovate a kitchen. But if that's the only thing you dislike about a property and you can buy it at a price that allows you to do that, get a project manager in and do it. Go to Bunnings and or IKEA, get get a get that new kitchen done. Um, get somebody else to help you with it, whatever it takes. Don't let a cosmetic thing be the reason that you don't buy a good property mm. that meets 
you know, the vast majority of your other criteria and doesn't have any, any overriding objections. It's really about everything being in the right spots. You know, it can have, you know, it can be the wrong colour. You could even not like the floor coverings and, and the window coverings or whatever. But, you know, if the bathroom is in the right spot and you don't like it, you can you can replace it easily. But when you've got things like, you know, bathrooms located a long way away from the bedrooms, for mm. argument's sake, that's what we're talking about here. Things mm. that are really expensive to rectify and, and in some cases just poorly constructed buildings in the first place or where they've really been poorly maintained some people are really good at maintaining their homes and you know i love those homes these people have loved it and they've just grandma's house yeah nana's houses they continued looking after it the whole time they've owned it and other people it's like when they move in that's the last time they actually did any maintenance (laughs) now the exception to that is if you have a long-term view of a property if you walk into a property and say this really doesn't work as it is but i have a 10-year plan, five-year plan, whatever the case may be, and I'm going to make extensions or, you know, in Queensland we raise, we build under, I'm going to add another story, whatever the case may be, then the bones that you want to look at aren't its livability in its current state, but what could it be when you, you know, where are the load-bearing walls? Where, where, how can I make this this property work? Um so looking at that long-term view of it, if you've got the budget and the ability and the interest and the ambition to do that. So not just is it right now, but if you have that in mind and you have the the financial capability and the plan to do that, think about that long-term vision of it. Number 10, Megan. Main roads, flooding, adjoining commercial, parts of schools, retail, these all have a really big impact on price. Now, if that's your compromise then make sure you pay the right price going in and accept that you'll not enjoy perhaps the same rate of capital growth as you would with perhaps a different asset. Um, Now, what we're saying there is there is a price differential for these compromises. If you've worked out in your 3P process and those that have done the where to buy um, tutorial will understand the 3P process, position, property, price. If in doing that, that research on yourself and your self-analysis, you've worked out that that is a compromise that you're prepared to to make and you're well aware of it, just make sure you're not doing comparable sales analysis on properties that don't have the same compromises. So these are the sorts of properties, you know, with these big compromises that people will buy really only if they have to. Mm. And it might be that the market is just going crazy and, and you know, a bit of a panic buy in, in a sense, but also you can't keep up with the market. And and it might also be around that you have to buy in that suburb. Your kids might already be in school, school in that suburb, for yeah. instance, you know, or, yeah. or, or you want the second child to go to the same school is the first child and so therefore you've got to buy in the catchment Mm -hmm. so those are the sorts of reasons that people might use and they they might decide okay i'm going to live on a main road in order to have that now we advise you to try to avoid buying these sorts of properties but we recognize that there are times when you will make these compromises so just go in with your eyes open make sure you you pay the appropriate price make sure you get a discount for it because you will Mm -hmm pay a discount when you sell it and it will fall behind the rest of the market to a degree and you do also have to be careful when you sell because these sorts of properties tend to need to have a hot market um, in order for it not to be a struggle to, to find a buyer. Absolutely. Number 11, don't just focus on your immediate neighbours because they can change next week. <laughs> Look at the whole neighbourhood and the, the you know, this is your terminology, PLE, PLUs, you, PLUs <laughs> the people like you, us, 
People like, like us. us. Yes. <laughs> Not us, you, you. Yeah, us, <laughs> you know, in, in all of our, we're all unique, aren't we? What You're all individuals. I'm not. Yeah, look, uh-huh. I, I like, you know, I, I like to be in a very family-friendly oriented um, suburb. That's that's people like me. I have friends who just love being in the heart of West End where it's vibing and that would be thriving me. and that's you. Um, <laughs> and that's, you know, we would not choose the same sorts of areas to live in. That doesn't make one better than the other. It's about what we feel comfortable in and some mm. of that, you know, going and checking out parks and who's hanging out there, who's at the cafe. You know, the the kind of people that you could see yourself going there on a Saturday and 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 having a coffee around those people. Going to the local shops can be a real eye opener, particularly if there's a shopping centre in in the area or, the or a shopping strip or pub. You know, get the feel for the vibe of the area. I I just West End just doesn't do it for me, but it just does it for so many people. You'd hate Brunswick, wouldn't you? It's not my vibe. Fitzroy, love it. See, I just love it. Send I'm me the out to Camberwell you know, or somewhere I'm like that. Nah. Love hanging out with other families. <laughs> Ruby, nah. <laughs> Point Cook, nah. I just want to be in the thick of it. All right, number twelve. <laughs> and Don't... that's okay. <laughs> totally okay. Absolutely, we need we need people to to you know want to be or to to uh, to. What's the word? It's the Value variety. Different, yeah, different um, characteristics. Yeah. All right. 12, don't let the process of the negotiation impact your decision to buy a property. This is my favourite. This is your favourite. Oh, I some, love this. Sometimes negotiation is difficult, but don't walk away just because of that. Yeah, yeah. A great example, Veronica, is when people avoid properties because they're going to auction. Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm not buying at auction. No, they really? avoid. It's like in some areas you're going to miss out on the best properties if you do that in some areas. Like if you're buying an inner Sydney or inner Melbourne and even parts of Brisbane, I would imagine. Yep. Um, and even some other states, and depending on uh, certainly Adelaide, when the market's hot, you know, you're going to find an agent starts to take the best properties to auction. So to to rule something out because of the method of sale is sort of cutting your nose off to spite your face. Oh, you could be absolutely missing out on the one. And and you and I quite like auctions because we feel comfortable with them. And if you have a discomfort with auction, then the best way to get in control of it is to become comfortable through education. So making sure that you understand what the auction process is, how is it, you know, what is the agent actually doing throughout the campaign? And that is gathering bidders. What sort of script and dialogue are they using? What is the process they'll go through? Will they take pre-auction offers? You know, what is the process of, of actually doing your due diligence before the auction? How much will that cost? Now, the amount of people that I've heard say, I'm not going to I'm not going to buy a property in auction because I'm not going to pay for might be strata report or building a pest inspection or whatever the case may be. And uh, you know, th- these are, you know, in your mind, these are reasonable reasons not to do something. But if that's the property, then get comfortable with the process. Be prepared to spend the money. Because if you buy that without having spent the money on doing the due diligence, then you could have bought yourself an absolute lemon. If you don't spend the money and you could have bought it within your price range and you miss out on that opportunity, you will kick yourself 
for a long time that you didn't put yourself in a position of buying it or you'll get angry at the agent for not telling you that you could have afforded it. Yeah, and but it comes back to that easy to buy thing. You know, what you're trying to, it, it's that's that's back to that, like what you said earlier about you wanting an easy process. And so people are saying, well, I want an easy process. I don't want to have a difficult process. Yeah, I just want to make an offer and have the owner accept it. Mm, no, I know. It's not going to happen. Sometimes, you, the, you know, you'd be missing the best property. But also people who avoid a particular agent's listings. And I know some agents can be a real nightmare. And also some agents in particular can have a real habit of underquoting or they're just a bit difficult to deal with or you just don't like them, you feel a bit smarmy or judgy or whatever. But, you know, you can't just rule out, particularly if they're particularly active agents, you know, you can't just rule out a, seg a section of the market. You know, it's not, but people do, they get really personal about this. And and I don't understand that. And, and that's why I think this principle is so, so valuable is you just have to let the process be very different from the decision of the property um, and don't let those two things, you know, we've been in deep in negotiations um, with with agents on on properties and had, had our buyers throw up their hands and say, that's it, I've had enough. It's like, well, no, you haven't because you want to buy the property. So we just keep, we just keep making those incremental movements towards a, an outcome that works. Um, so, you know, and, you know, that unemotional, just let's get, let's keep in the game here because the property is the property, the right one. Yes, we will continue with the process because the, the property will last well after the process is completed. Oh, you'll get over that pain of it. It's a bit like childbirth, right? You know. <laughs> You forget how painful it was once you've got your lovely, bouncing, beautiful baby. Yeah, some people do. Now, the best thing is to, <laughs> the best thing to do is learn the rules of the game, and that's learn how to handle different methods of sale, private treaty, auction, and rise above your fears. Actually, have that confidence to take control of it and say. I am focused on the right property for me and I will make sure that I understand, understand, understand the rules of the game and the rules of engagement regardless of who the agent is, what the process is. I will have the right um, uh, questions to ask and I will know what to do with the answers that I receive when I ask them. That puts you in much more control of, of actually then focusing on the property, not the process. 100%. And it's very easy to get sort of waylaid and focus on the wrong things. Oh, you are so right. <laughs> Which leads us to our 13th, the final at this point of time, property principle from Homebuyer Academy is, drumroll, do you want to take it away, Megan? Making decisions that are based on the numbers. The numbers. <laughs> it's such a limiting way to choose a location. You know, we need to look. Uh, and, and when you're out there looking, you need to look for places where people want to live and look for properties they want to live in. So whilst you might want to have a certain level of investment or what we would prefer to say capital growth, potential for capital growth focus, just looking at the numbers is going to limit the, the factor that is so important in property and that's people because people and emotions are just as important as property. Well, they actually drive the property market. The emotions are what drives the property market. But what actually is a classic is that the numbers, all the numbers do, if you're looking at history, is put in numerical form what emotional buyers have done in the past. So understanding human beings is so much more valuable because then you're more likely to be able to work out what's going to happen. 
Yeah. And you look for, you can look for indicators of what people doing. What are people doing? Not not just what the media is saying, but what are people actually doing here? Because we talk about, you know, um, the media talks a lot about um, high growth areas and you've got to have a look and say, well, is that high growth in terms of capital growth or is that high growth in terms of increase of number of properties available because there's lots of developments happening in that area and they're two really different things. Really different. And then you think, okay, how do human beings react when there's lots of stock available and lots of new stock with no character and it's all the same versus how do human beings react when there's a few amount of properties on the market and they've got lots of character and they're really well looked after and they've got other gardens and they have to in fight good over neighborhoods it. And, in good and neighborhoods. Established right- neighborhoods with trees. Yeah, <laughs> with right trees. Yeah. Street appeal. You know, it's it is very much about that future owner occupier appeal rather than looking at numbers and data. And look, look, a lot with a lot of property data, the people who are using it don't actually understand it. And I think the classic with property data is you can take any set of statistics and have it support any theory that you want to propose. You really can. Markets rising, markets falling, same data. But yeah, and the lot. In fact, there was uh, in June. I remember there's like one day in the papers. I looked at all these different headlines. They're all saying different, all equally true, but all saying completely opposite things. All using data, right? So, because the fact is, with property data, a lot of people are using it for marketing purposes, not educational purposes. Um, and also, it's aggregated. And what that means is, when you're hearing about an an area's prices went up, that means that on average or the median price in that area, whereas individuals are making individual decisions on individual properties and they don't all perform exactly the same way. You know, a whole area, the median price could go up, but some properties within that could go up more than others and some could actually fall in value at the same time. so true. And that's where understanding local dynamics is unbelievably important because it's the things that local buyers want that generally people will pay a premium for it's not rocket science well it's just well it depends what you've been reading and what people have been telling you because i agree it's not rocket science but there is there is an a, a way to do it that is you know but there's work involved work involved yes yeah i'm not saying it's easy I'm just saying it's it's not you don't need to go off and get a statistics degree to be able to understand the property market. You in you need to understand the local market you want to buy in and it is it is a process you need to invest in which is why we put together your first home buyer guide, a process that helps you understand what to do the entire way through your property journey so that you don't make silly mistakes and you actually buy the right property for you at the end of it all. So there you go. Our 13 property principles. We hope that you found them really enlightening. In this episode, we've only touched on a tiny part of the huge amount of things you need to know to become an educated first home buyer. There is so much more for you to do. You can learn all of the steps in the right order and avoid all of the mistakes that others have made in our 10-step online course for first home buyers. If you'd like to learn more about the right process and avoid making rookie errors, become an educated home buyer. Head over to the website, check out your first home buyer guide, the course that we have created for you. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you won't miss an episode. And if you've liked what you've heard today, please give us an iTunes review. It helps other people find us 
And of course, I know it's a bit cringy, but we're going to ask for five stars. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. We hope you found this really useful. And if you have, please share the love with others who you know are in the same boat. We'll be back next week with more priceless stuff.